This is Show Me Today, the voice of Missouri. I'm Bill Pollack. Disc golf is becoming more and more popular. We'll talk with uh, one of the organizers in St. Louis, uh, not just that area, but across the state, how the sport is booming. The State Historical Society is marking its 125th anniversary. We'll hear from them. New preliminary guidelines are out to get checked for breast cancer. With Dr. Amy Patel of the Breast Care Center at Liberty Hospital near Kansas City. Tell me about what the previous guidelines were, and then we'll talk about what the new ones look like. Absolutely. So previously, the United States Preventive Services Task Force recommended screening mammograms every other year beginning at age 50. And now the USPSTF has issued draft guidelines, meaning there is still time for the public to comment until June 6th. But these draft recommendations now recommend screening mammograms to be performed every other year starting at age 40. So they did lower the age to 40, which is commensurate to multiple subspecialty groups, but they are still recommending screening mammography every other year, which differs from multiple uh, subspecialty groups who recommend annual screening mammography beginning at age 40 in average-risk women. What about those who are at higher risk of breast cancer? Um, Would would this apply every other year then, or would it be something where people would need to get them still every year? So that is one of the uh, issues that many of us in the breast imaging community uh, have, you know, are addressing. So the USPSDF, these draft recommendations are focused on screening guidelines that are, so to speak, lumped together. They did not address above-average-risk patients. Now, the American College of Radiology recommends that all women, any woman of any color, is risk-assessed for breast cancer by age 25. And if you're deemed high-risk, we recommend annual screening breast MRI from the ages of 25 to 29. And once you turn 30, annual screening mammography alternating every six months with supplemental screening in the form of breast MRI. So that was not addressed in that. Other things that weren't addressed were breast density. So we know that breast density is a risk factor uh, for breast cancer and that some women may want supplemental screening in addition to mammography because we know dense breasts has a tendency to obscure breast cancers on mammography that can be revealed on supplemental tools such as MRI or ultrasound. So that wasn't addressed either. If you do want to get a mammogram each year, even though that's not what these draft guidelines show at this time, um, will that be covered by insurance then? So luckily in the state of Missouri, we have coverage for annual screening mammography uh, beginning at age 40 uh, in average risk women. And we have this because we were able to pass legislation in Missouri, particularly in 2018. Uh, So that's wonderful. Um, And also, I would say that, you know, most people, even with these USPSTF guidelines, still recommending mammography every other year, uh, most will be covered. Uh, So that is still wonderful. We have other federal legislation that continues to uh, uphold annual screening mammography coverage requirements, uh, and that is through the PALS Act. So that is wonderful, too. 
Uh, so we, you know, we have waste around it, uh, but we want to make sure that the USPSTF is on the same page as other subspecialty groups because there is still so much confusion amongst the public, even amongst uh, primary care providers about what screening guidelines to recommend to women. So we really all need to get on the same page and recommend annual screening mammography in average-risk women uh, beginning at age 40. And average-risk means that, you know, uh, you have less than a 20% lifetime percent risk of breast cancer. Uh, by strict definition, it's actually 1 to 14%. Uh, 15 to 19% is inter intermediate risk. But we want to make sure that these women uh, are getting screened annually, beginning at age 40. I'm curious, do you happen to know how Missouri's breast cancer rate compares to the rest of the nation? So, you know... We are still trying to make some great headway. Uh, we particularly are struggling when it comes to women of color in the state of Missouri. So we know that the incidence of breast cancer, for example, uh, is lower in black women compared to white women in general. But we know that black women are 40% more likely to die of breast cancer than white women. And in the state of Missouri, that's even higher. We're above national average. So, you know, we still have a lot of work to do, but the good news is that we have been able to pass some really critical pieces of breast imaging legislation, one that we were just uh, able to pass waiting for the governor's signature. Uh, that could be tremendous when it comes to uh, saving more lives of all Missouri women. What if a person is born a woman and has a gender transition or a person is born a man and has a gender transition? How do they go about these guidelines? Sure. So, you know, that's another piece specifically when it comes to the task force guidelines. This really wasn't uh, addressed. But the American College of Radiology and Society of Breast Imaging, uh, you know, have made it very clear uh, that, you know, factors such as, as sex assigned at birth, hormone use, and surgical histories, they really transgender people at an increased risk for breast cancer. So we have to be cognizant of that. And biological females that transition to male who do not undergo a mastectomy, they remain at their previous risk for breast cancer and they should be screened as such. So that's really important to remember. And then specifically, you know, males who are transitioning to female uh, that are having um, exogenous hormonal exposure such as estrogen, you know, there's still uh, research being conducted on that, and that does vary uh, across practice types. Uh, but, you know, I would say that more and more uh, practices, uh, as the research is revealing itself, are screening these patients who are receiving, you know, high-dose estrogen, who are developing breast tissue and treating them uh, just like a woman uh, would, in, we would tr treat a woman in terms of their imaging surveillance. Okay. All right. And then, okay, I, I'm not a doctor, so I'm going to ask a stupid question here. But um, when it comes to breast density, is there anything that we need to do to take better care of ourselves so that our breasts are not so dense? Or is that just uh, how we're, that's just our DNA, you know, is that just how we're built? 
Yeah, so that's a great question. So a lot of times breast density is something that's really out of our control. Now, specifically after menopause, when our estrogen levels plummet or re- re- decrease, a lot of times that dense breast tissue is going to involute to fat. So the breast composition can often uh, change at times. So that's uh, from you know a dense composition to a fatty composition, particularly after menopause. So that is something to uh, remember. Uh, but we're again we're still studying a lot about breast density, and we're finding that you know there is you know likely a, a genetic predisposition. There's a lot of wonderful research happening on breast density, particularly at Washington University in St. Louis. Researchers are really looking at this, uh, not just uh, the genetic predisposition, but also where, you know, breast, den- you know, cancers are developing in this dense breast tissue, which we're often seeing particularly in the upper outer quadrants of the breast. So, you know, specifically the best thing I think women can do is to ask, you know, what is my breast composition? What is my breast density? A lot of times women don't find out about their density until after the fact, after they've had the mammogram. And then they say, oh, I had no idea about my breast density. So it's important for women to take charge of their breast health, as I often say. If you're going in and you're having a mammogram, see what your breast density is. If you are one of those women who have what are called heterogeneously or extremely dense breasts, which is essentially just based on the amount of dense breast tissue that you have that we see on mammography. Uh, ask if, you know, does your breast center offer supplemental screening? Uh, and a lot of breast centers do. Specifically, for example, at my breast center, we offer what's something called abbreviated breast MRI, which is a truncated version of a full breast MRI uh, that patients can use as a supplemental tool at the time of their screening mammogram. They can then have a breast MRI that's an 11-minute scan uh, to make sure there's nothing else that's hiding in that sea of dense breast tissue that we may not see on mammography. So at this time, you know, the best thing for women to do is to ask. Uh, And we are here to help and to educate patients so they can make the best informed decision for themselves. My therapist had told me that I needed to go to AA meetings, but I wasn't sure whether I wanted to go because I didn't want to be an alcoholic. That was not what I wanted to grow up and be. I didn't want to go to AA, but I did, and it wasn't what I expected by any means. It was friendly. I could feel it. I mean, I could feel the happiness. It's really great. Visit AA.org for more information and download the Meeting Guide app to find a meeting near you. Every day we take steps to keep the people we love safe, but some health risks are easy to miss. Ticks hiding in the yard can spread germs, like the ones that cause Lyme disease. Mice searching for food can spread bacteria that makes us sick. Mosquitoes lay eggs in standing water and can spread West Nile virus and more. Cockroaches are drawn to water in the home, leaving behind allergens that can trigger asthma attacks. Common pests can threaten our health. Learn how to protect your family at pestworld.org. The United States Deputy Sheriff's Association is a national nonprofit and the largest non-governmental provider of services to law enforcement. The USDSA assists city, county, state, and federal agencies with free safety equipment donations and officer survival training, along with cash donations to families of law enforcement officers who perish in the line of duty, a citizen awareness program, and more. For more information on United States Deputy Sheriff's Association, please visit usdeputy.org. 
Since Missouri's agricultural community joined together to help support the launch of Missouri Farmers Care Drive to Feed Kids in 2017, the drive has generated 11,224,132 meals that have all been donated to Missourians in need. Together, we can get Missouri food products on the plates of hungry Missouri children and their families. Visit mofarmerscare.com drive to learn more and join the effort. Do you worry about how much someone drinks? Do you feel angry or depressed most of the time? Do you feel neglected or unloved? Do you feel that if the drinker loved you, she or he would stop drinking? If you answered yes to any of these questions, you are not alone. Not everyone trapped by alcohol is an alcoholic. Families and friends are suffering too. Al-Anon and Alateen can help. Call 1-866-200-0223 or visit alanon.org slash help. The United States Deputy Sheriff's Association is a national nonprofit and the largest non-governmental provider of services to law enforcement. The USDSA assists city, county, state, and federal agencies with free safety equipment donations and officer survival training along with cash donations to families of law enforcement officers who perish in the line of duty, college scholarships for the children of law enforcement, a citizen awareness program, and more. For more information on the USDSA and how you can help, visit usdeputy.org. We're back on Show Me Today. Harsher penalties are coming for anyone who carelessly shoots their guns in the air. Missouri lawmakers have passed a bill. It's now called Blair's Law. It's named after an 11-year-old who was killed by a stray bullet in 2011. Marshall Griffin talks to Blair's mother, Michelle Shanahan DeMoss. If you wouldn't mind, tell us a little bit about uh, Blair and about uh, your life with her before this happened. Blair was amazing, uh, bright, happy, beautiful, energetic child. Um, and just we had what we called a normal life, but at the same time, you know, we're, uh, I guess our joke in our family used to say is, that's not normal. And then we'd say, well, but we're doing it, so it's normal. <laughs> so uh, just a happy, outgoing little girl. Is if you feel like it, tell us what happened that night. It was, we had been out of town and um, arrived home to um, head over to family's house that's on acreage, 19 acres. Um, They were having a get together with friends, church friends, and um, it was Blair's cousins. And, you know, she was pretty excited to go over there. They had swimming and, you know, lots of fun things to do. And, you know, there was food and and fun, and, you know, she got out of the car and beelined to the pool with the girls and her cousins, and then at a point they were um, doing little smoke, I guess you call them smoke bomb little things, but they were dancing on the driveway because they were colored. And there's a short video that um, has circulated for years, and I tell everybody if you really look at that video you can see the girls holding pushing each other's arms making sure nobody steps on anything and being really cautious of what they were doing but at the same time there was several adults around um several is probably six or more of us and Blair started to fall and I kind of heard you know some things being said and I started lunging towards her and as I was able to get her and 
you know, I found myself on my knees next to her realizing she something tragic has happened. And I really could not articulate to anybody there, but just repeatedly to call 911 and to find out at Children's Mercy that he'd been struck by a bullet. And like I said, we were on 19 acres. There was nobody firing a gun. And there were, we, we weren't doing like specific what people like fireworks, like we would go to see a fireworks show. I mean, these were things that children could handle. And um, so she was struck in the neck by a bullet that was fired from three football fields away from a nine millimeter Glock. Very, very sorry. I know this. I appreciate you talking about this. I'm sure it's not easy, even though you've probably told the story before. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, and that was one of the things I said when we we were able to find finalize getting the bill passed is that me telling the story on a regular basis is going to going to come to an end. So. You know, I won't have to say it all the time. Right now, I know I have to do it. It's kind of mechanical at this point. It doesn't eliminate the, it does still cause, you know, it's a deep-seated emotion in me that has not found a resting spot. So, and yes, they they were able to, there were four men that um, allegedly fired that weapon that night. And one of which was the owner of the gun. So when they were able to have somebody admit that they had a weapon and it was out and it was being fired, um, the Kansas city police were able to match that gun to the, the slug that Blair held in her neck at 98%. Were any charges brought? Was what, what happened after that? Well, the, the gun owner was charged with the felony because Blair lost her life. Um, He was sentenced to three years in the state penitentiary and he served 18 months. And then there were three other men that were um, sentenced with a two year suspended sentence and our 18 months, something suspended sentence and um, uh, 10 hours of community service uh, for Maybe that maybe that's it. I think I've just confused that. But, you know, it it came down to the community service for for them. And and I've also like to say that, you know, they they were arrested and did serve the time. And and so my focus is not them. My focus has always been moving forward, you know, in educating people that this happens and it continues to happen. And it shouldn't be a misdemeanor. So my focus is not on focusing on the people that did this, because I don't truly believe they would have been doing it if they knew there was a possibility it could have killed somebody that night. You know, anybody that is responsible with a gun knows there's got to be something beyond. And we were beyond the green wooded area on 19 acres. That bullet came from three football fields away. You're listening to Show Me Today. This is Marshall Griffin. We're speaking with Michelle Shanahan-DeMoss. She's the mother of Blair Shanahan Lane, who lost her life 12 years ago from a stray bullet that was fired um, into the air, as as um, Michelle has been telling us about. You say you want to f- you've been focusing on going forward, and that's what you've done. And 
12 years after this has happened, there's finally a law that would uh, strengthen penalties uh, for, for this type of behavior. I guess my first question is, why did it take 12 years? Well, I just think each year there's been a different scenario that has happened in Jefferson City. Um, but every year the wheels continue to turn and the conversations continued. And and logistically, you know, it's a short time and a lot of things happen in Jefferson City. And so I think historically, if you look back in the past, it's it's just been a little more than um, we're, we're getting very close to 12 years, but if you look back, you can see some of the things that have happened in Missouri that, you know, kind of got our legislators um, in a different direction. But um, as I said, the conversations can continued, the understanding that, you know, it's common sense legislation and more, more people um, and, and both sides, the bipartisan support is just overwhelming. And I would say in the beginning, it was very hard to get people to sit down and have a conversation and really want to understand and wrap their head around. I think the focus was more on worried about, I'm not really sure what to say, worried about, but I mean, we've just moved ahead and we've arrived at, at a good place. And, you know, I just look forward to Governor Parsons signing it into law and, and, you know, I won't stop educating people or having having the conversation. I shared that just shortly after leaving the state capitol, somebody stopped me in conversation about knowing that I had been there and and let me know that they had just bought a gun and and were absolutely unaware how far a bullet traveled. And just the facial expression from that person, you know, is something that's etched in my mind that it's a, you know, it's a big deal to, to let people know that. And that, a, you know, a gun's not a toy. It's not something to be out at a party. And to encourage people to call law enforcement, you know, if somebody is using a gun recklessly or, you know, without any understanding of what they're doing. When you first, when did you first get the news or get an idea that this actually was going to make it across the finish line this time? <laughs> You know, I clearly can't rattle off the date this year when we went back into session, but I really am grateful for the persistence of Representative Mark Sharp. And um, both of us have remained very optimistic and also very understanding, again, of what goes on, you know, making laws and, and, and having conversations. But I will tell you that I, when I, I don't, I, didn't and and the notification of when I needed to be in Jeff, Jefferson City, you know, it wasn't like I had a leisurely week of knowing. It was generally the the day before, sometimes two o'clock, sometimes even, you know, latter in the latter part of the evening. You know, though there's going to be a hearing or an opportunity for you to testify. And when I found out the Wednesday before I went down, I just had a very clear sense of peace, overwhelming feeling that I needed to be there. And from the moment I entered that state capitol, it absolutely positive in every conversation. You know, I'm not going to say that, you know, I wasn't trembling or I wasn't, you know, you know, 100% sure, but I just had had a very good feeling. And the ninth hour, we were just about there. So 
That was Michelle Shannon DeMoss. She's the mother of Blair Shanahan Lane, who lost her life 12 years ago from a stray bullet. And Blair's law is set to become the law of Missouri later this year. If you're tuning in late or want to hear more, subscribe to Show Me Today on Apple or wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Show Me Today, the voice of Missouri. Meet Ed, movie buff, animal lover, safe driver. Five years of driving an ambulance teaches you a thing or two. If people knew what I know, lives could be saved. When I see a car trying to rush past the turning bus, I get concerned. You see, when big vehicles turn right, they have to swing wide to make the turn. And that's a lesson you don't want to learn the hard way. When trucks and buses turn, let's you and I wait. It's It's our roads. It's It's our safety. Visit www.sharetheroadsafely.gov. If you talk and they will hear you Why are we getting killed like this? Kyle's not here. Got caught drinking during the park a couple of nights ago. Really? Yeah. Zero tolerance. He's out for the season. Harsh. Hey, he knew not to drink. We've made that clear to all of our kids, right? Uh, no, not really. Bill, if we don't tell them what we expect and why they shouldn't drink, how are they going to know? Talk. They hear you. For more information, visit underagedrinking.samsa.gov. You try All the talks we've had over the years, including what you've told me about not using alcohol and other drugs, they stick with me. And believe it or not, they really do make a difference, especially at times that matter most. Hey, want a drink? No thanks, I'm good. So thank you, Dad, for talking and preparing me for what's ahead. Thank you for talking. For more information about talking with your kids about underage use of alcohol and other drugs, visit underagedrinking.samsa.gov. Hi, it's Tori DeVito. In every family, small conversations can make a big impact. Like when my dad shared his experiences as an alcoholic. Your honesty about that part of your life gave me a sense of integrity that I wanted to uphold in my own life. I wanted you to know from someone who's been in recovery more than 30 years now that hard work is what creates success, not alcohol or other drugs. I said it a lot, and I'm glad you took it to heart. Talk. They hear you. For more information, visit underagedrinking.samsa.gov. When it comes to vaping, the truth can get clouded. So let's make it clear. Vaping is not safe for kids, teens, or young adults. It's just not. Because vaping can put microscopic particles into your lungs. And dangerous things like metals and volatile organic compounds into your body. And nicotine, the same highly addictive substance found in regular cigarettes. Nicotine can harm a person's brain development through their mid-20s. Affecting learning, memory, attention, and impulse control, and priming the brain for other addictions. Vaping products also come in kid-friendly flavors that can make them appealing to youth. And many kids also use other drugs, like marijuana, in vaping devices. With appealing flavors, high nicotine levels, and lots of promotion on social media. Many kids think vaping is harmless, but it's not. So talk to your kids about the risks of vaping, because when you talk, they hear you. For more information, visit underagedrinking.samsa.gov. Email from school about the incident today. Scary. Tell me about it. Did you have any idea that was going on? None. I mean, you saw Derek at the game last night, too. Did you have a clue? No, but you know, teachers like me, parents, we don't always know as much as you guys do. Kids hear first about what's going on with other kids. Half the time, it's rumors. It can be hard to tell sometimes, but if you have a concern about a friend who's having trouble with alcohol, prescription drugs, bullying, violence, anything, you need to tell an adult. 
mom or me, a teacher, coach, school counselor, someone you know and trust. Dad, no kid is going to tell an adult about that kind of stuff. I get it, but if we don't know, we can't help. Speaking up about a problem, that's what helping a friend is all about. For more information, visit underagedrinking.samsa.gov. Thank you for listening to Show Me Today. I'm Bill Pollack. The State Historical Society is marking its 125th year of service. Ashley Bird talks to Gary Kramer, the executive director. The State Historical Society's founding in 1898, uh, May 26th, 1898 to be precise. And uh, it was founded, the organization was founded by the Missouri Press Association originally as a, a way of preserving Missouri newspapers. Newspapers are sometimes referred to as the first draft of history. And uh, so the organization began in 1898, and soon thereafter, the Missouri legislature decided that our organization should become the official uh, keeper of Missouri history. And so... Uh, Legislation was passed uh, without, by the way, any appropriation. Initially, our uh, our organization got no state money. It took us a couple of years to to get state funding. I think I may be wrong about this, but I think in the beginning, the very first appropriation we got was forty five hundred dollars, which was to cover two years. In those days. The legislature only met every other year, so we began and with with a very minimal uh, operation, and we began in the basement of what is now Jesse Hall, then called Academic Hall, and we stayed there for uh, more than a decade and a half. Uh, the story of our move is is kind of an interesting one. In uh, the the legislature had been unwilling to support a library funding for a library for the University of Missouri in the early years of the 20th century. The university kept trying. The legislature kept declining to fund a library. In February of 1911, the Capitol fire occurred in Jefferson City. The Capitol burned. And convicts were sent into the burning building to retrieve historical documents. And those documents were loaded on freight cars and hauled to Columbia by train and stored in the basement of Jesse Hall because that was where the State Historical Society was headquartered. So the next legislative session after uh, after the fire, the legislature, somewhat embarrassed, I think, by the inadequacy of the facility to keep these important historical records, voted to create a, to build a, a new library for the University of Missouri and also for the State Historical Society that would become ultimately what is now uh, Ellis Library, the main library on the campus of the University of Missouri. Gary, let's take a great leap forward 120-something years later, and you are in a new facility, a history center, an interactive-type center as well, Um the, not only the legislature, but clearly you've got support from other areas. And how has how has it remained successful enough to grow into a center near campus or on campus? 
Well, uh, the Center for Missouri Studies is uh, is a structure and an institution that we spent a lot of years uh, gathering support for, both in the legislature and in the uh, larger Missouri community. Uh, we are not only state-supported, uh, but we're also a 501c3 uh, tax-exempt uh, entity. So we, we are membership-based. We have a, a rather large membership. And uh, for the last 10 years, really starting aggressively in about 2008, we began to uh, advocate in the General Assembly for support for a new building, and we also began a fundraising campaign. But again, the building, uh, the center could not have been built without the support of Missouri legislators and, and the governor. We began serious efforts on this in the administration of, uh, of Governor Matt Blunt. And then we were strongly supported by Governor Jay Nixon and ultimately by uh, then Senator and now Governor Mike Parson. And Garrett, I must mention your book. You've written a book called This Place of Promise, which is an historian's perspective on 200 years of Missouri history. Um, I have a copy. And you are a fifth generation Missourian. So you've seen a lot happen. But I'm always interested as to what was the tide, what turned the tide for the legislature and, and folks in leadership to begin to realize that we needed to not only have a safe place for this, but we needed to continue to gather historical things. Uh, what what changed everything? Well, I think uh, I think ultimately things happen politically and even uh, in personal relationships because of connections and relationships. Uh, until 2005, the State Historical Society relied on the University of Missouri's Office of Government Relations to represent the society in the legislature. Uh, we had an experience in 2005 when we were nearly zeroed out. In fact, we were for a while zeroed out of the budget. I think, I think it was largely a consequence of nobody really uh, knowing what we did and who we were. And from and that was in my first year. Uh, as the executive director of the State Historical Society. So beginning in the spring of 2005, uh, I began to represent us in the legislature going down to lobby for our budget. And we also began to uh, aggressively create a board that could help us both politically and financially. And so we brought onto the board a number of prominent Missourians who uh, who had both legislative experience and legal experience. Uh, then uh, Supreme Court Justice, Missouri Supreme Court Justice Steve Limbaugh was one of the first board members who came on during that period. And ultimately, we added uh, people like uh, former Senator uh, Ron Richard, uh, former Senator Kurt Schaefer, uh, a, a number of people who had prominent positions in state government. And I think they uh, they helped us to raise the visibility of the State Historical Society to understand. In fact, one of the things uh, Governor Matt Blunt did was ask us to uh, to simply do a, a, an appraisal of our art collection. We're one of the few historical societies in the country that have an art gallery. 
and so uh, we 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 had very little money. We couldn't afford to hire an appraiser, but we we went out on a limb and did. And that appraisal came back uh, at uh, well, I, I don't want to give the figure, but a substantial number. <laughs> um, and uh, and and so we began to to say to legislators, look, we have this wonderful collection of George Caleb Bingham and Thomas Hart Benton paintings. And uh, they're not particularly secure because of the facility in which they're in. And uh, won't you help us? Because we are uh, trustees for the people of the state of Missouri. Missourians own this artwork. They own the documents. They own everything we have. We are only the custodians. And our board of trustees are the trustees for the people of the state of Missouri. So in essence, we, we, uh, we started a campaign of education and promotion of who we were and what we do. Gary Kramer is the executive director of the State Historical Society of Missouri, and any Missourian can become a member of the Historical Society, correct? And, and what what do they get from that? And what do Missourians get from the besides, you know, knowing that our stuff is kept safe? Well, sure. Any Missourian, in fact, you don't have to be a Missourian to join the State Historical Society. Uh, we have members literally from all over the world. But you don't have to be a member of the State Historical Society to use our resources. In fact, uh, the legislation which authorizes us specifically prohibits us from charging an admission fee to come and use these resources. We may charge copy fees and that sort of thing, but you don't have to pay just to come to access the records. Um, people who are members, first of all, become members because they want to support the State Historical Society. One of the things they get is uh, the quarterly scholarly journal that we produce uh, called the Missouri Historical Review, which is a referee journal and carries articles on uh, various aspects of Missouri history. We've been publishing that journal without missing an issue since 1906. Well, Gary, love to have you back to talk more history on Show Me Today, the voice of Missouri. Some people won't give you the real talk on drugs, but it's time we know the facts. Fentanyl is killing people. It's a powerful opioid, often made illegally and commonly mixed with illicit drugs. It can even be pressed into counterfeit pills that resemble prescription medications. Just two milligrams, about the size of a few grains of sand, could potentially be lethal. This isn't an ad to scare you, but it is an ad to make you think twice. Get the facts. Go to realdealonfentanyl.com. This message is brought to you by the Ad Council. Put a frog in boiling water and it'll jump right out. But put a frog in cool water and slowly heat it up that frog will boil. As veterans, we tell ourselves the lie that we can handle anything. We let the water boil. You are not a frog. If you or a veteran you know needs support, don't wait. Reach out. Find resources at va.gov reach. That's va.gov reach. Brought to you by the United States Department of Veterans Affairs and the Ad Council. Having enough food is a concern for many Missouri families, and it isn't restricted to rule or urban areas. As many as one in eight Missourians face food insecurity every day. Among children, the numbers are even higher. To ensure Missouri children have the food they need to thrive, Missouri's agricultural community launched Drive to Feed Kids six years ago. Visit mofarmerscare.com slash drive to learn more and join the efforts. 
As many as one in eight Missourians face food insecurity every day, and among children, the numbers are even higher. The Drive to Feed Kids Hogs for Hunger program gives Missouri pig farmers and 4-H and FFA swine exhibitors the opportunity to address hunger in their communities by committing pigs locally or at the Missouri State Fair. One pig can feed more than 500 Missourians in need. Learn how you can participate at mofarmerscare.com drive. Do you worry about how much someone drinks? Do you feel angry or depressed most of the time? Do you feel neglected or unloved? Do you feel that if the drinker loved you, she or he would stop drinking? If you answered yes to any of these questions, you are not alone. Not everyone trapped by alcohol is an alcoholic. Families and friends are suffering too. Al-Anon and Alateen can help. Call 1-866-200-0223 or visit alanon.org slash help. The United States Deputy Sheriff's Association is a national nonprofit and the largest non-governmental provider of services to law enforcement. The USDSA assists city, county, state, and federal agencies with free safety equipment donations and officer survival training along with cash donations to families of law enforcement officers who perish in the line of duty, college scholarships for the children of law enforcement, a citizen awareness program, and more. For more information on the USDSA and how you can help, visit usdeputy.org. This is Show Me Today, the voice of Missouri. I'm Bill Pollock. Disc golf is continuing to grow and become ever more popular here in the state of Missouri. And there's a big uh, disc golf club in St. Louis, uh, appropriately named the St. Louis Disc Golf Club. And joining us, one of their board members, Calvin Kinsella. Calvin, welcome to the show. First, just explain what the, the purpose is of the St. Louis Disc Golf Club. So the St. Louis Disc Golf Club um, is a volunteer organization that primarily exists to help promote the growth of the sport. Uh, And we do that through uh, providing a a fun atmosphere, um, some competitive events as well uh, for the greater disc golf community. And we fundraise and uh, improve courses, install new courses, uh, run leagues and tournaments and much more and, and generally try to build a, a good sense of community and, and camaraderie uh, among those that enjoy this game. How many members do you have in your club? Uh, for the 2023 fiscal year, we currently have 252 Um that is just the St. Louis Club. There is also the St. Charles Disc Golf Club. There are clubs uh, uh, around the region, also just over the river into Illinois and, and Belleville areas, Collinsville, Fairview Heights. Um, all told throughout the region, um, I would estimate that we've got somewhere around 1,400 total players. Um, and of those that pay into some sort of club membership, somewhere probably closer to five to 600. You know, I'm just looking at your uh, website for St. Louis Disc Golf Club, and uh, and I see on your logo that you are established in 1979. I guess I didn't realize that disc golf has been around that long. That is correct. This yeah. is a, <laughs> a, a very, very, um, it's, I mean, it's still new and um, somewhat niche, but through uh you know, people's love of outdoors, uh, you know, and, and throwing Frisbees, flying discs, period. Um, you know, this has uh, evolved from uh, ultimate uh, and, and uh, you know, Frisbee, you know, kind of football kind of sports 
Um, and then uh, a guy named um, Ed Hedrick, Steady Ed, uh, developed the first basket, and uh, the rest is history. Steady Ed. Uh, I'm sure he got that for his ability to uh, to hit close shots. <laughs> uh, and he was very, very uh, well-controlled. He was a, uh, an excellent golfer in his own right, but he also just um, had the vision to see that this could really be something that uh, that could take off and that was very approachable for all sorts of people and all sorts of skill levels. Um, and just, you know, anyone that, that wants to be outside can play. Calvin Kinsella is joining us from the St. Louis Disc Golf Club. Uh, it's been around since 1979. You know, I, at that time, I was a, a little kid throwing Frisbees off of trees. I, I didn't even, you know, like I must have led a sheltered life. I didn't realize that this golf is, has been around. But but the sport is growing, though, and you do some uh, events and tournaments. Uh, how many of those do you host throughout the year in the St. Louis region? Um, I don't know the exact number. Um, I would guess it. So, so the, the number of events that are run specifically by the club uh, is probably around 15 to 16 events uh, throughout the course of the year. However, there are also multiple um, smaller groups within the, the disc golf club itself that perhaps um, are all closely located around one small, one grouping of courses and that's where they put all of their volunteer time and all of their effort into it and so they really find uh, and develop a, a sense of ownership on how well that park presents and so they will also run their own smaller tournaments that are still disc golf club adjacent um but you know like i i, I wouldn't say that the club runs those because the, all of the work of organizing it uh, is is done by a smaller group of people, uh, and I don't want to, you know, yeah. steal any of their valor. No, no, gotcha. Yeah, so again, I'm on your site, and I was looking at courses, and uh, within your region, uh, the St. Louis region, there's 55 different courses, so uh, plenty of options uh, no matter where you live in the St. Louis area. Calvin, uh, if someone gets a membership into the St. Louis Disc Golf Club, what what do those benefits entail? Uh, so part of the benefits of uh, being a member and, and paying your annual dues, which is $30 a year, um, is course improvements. Um, <clears throat> obviously, you get to, to participate in the community. You get to help have a, vi- uh, have a voice in all of our decisions and our priorities for which course improvements, which course installation. You'll get a, a custom stamped putter with the St. Louis Disc Golf logo. Um, you'll also get a, a, a koozie and a bag tag that shows your number within the within the club. Um, and those tags are kind of like <clears throat> traveling, um, just easy reasons to, to put something on the line for that game. So instead of, um, you know, like, like say you and I, Bill, wanted to play a round together, I, was, I had the five tag and you had the 15 tag. If you happen to beat me in that round, then you'll take the five and I'll leave with the 15. And we can do that with, with you know, 10 people playing all, all at the same time, which are called bag tag tournaments. They're very popular. Um, and so you'll just take whatever the tag is based on how you, you know, corresponding finishing position. Um, you'll also get added as a member of the club. You also have access to um, the club ace pot. So, at all of the tournaments that we run and all of the leagues that we run, 
there are um, optional additional purchases. So say uh, you you would register for a tournament, it would cost twenty dollars, but you could pay an extra dollar for the ace pool. So if you happen to hit an ace during that tournament, then you would get uh, that that ace pot. Only the only club members are actually eligible for that. Um, there are also just I mean, personally, I have always felt that the greatest benefit of becoming a member of the club is exposure to all of these other people from so many different walks of life that are still here in your city and area that you might not have known share this passion for this game with you. Uh, and so you really just get a, a much larger sense of community. All of these more, all of these other people that you get to um, learn about and, and become friends with and share this, this activity that you, that you both enjoy. So that's always, I mean, personally, that's been always the biggest thing for me. Yeah. Calvin, for uh, the listeners across the state that, that are in the St. Louis area, uh, if they uh, are heading to St. Louis for a weekend or they're uh, disc golfers themselves and they want to come and play in the St. Louis area, uh, where do you recommend uh, any, any cool places that you say, well, listen, if you're going to try it the first time, you need to go, you need to go here. This is, this is the best one. This is like the Belle Reeve of disc golf. <laughs> <laughs> um, if I were just coming through town, uh, and, an oldie, uh, but a favorite of mine has always been Endicott Park, which is up off of St. Charles Rock Road up near the airport. Yeah. Um, there's another course that's right down the road from there that's a bit longer and more of a professional caliber that's called Carrollton. And then obviously, you know, the Jefferson Barracks Park down in South St. Louis, uh, there's the original course, which is wonderful, beautiful, large oak mature trees, uh, large fairways, and then there's a separate, entirely separate 18-hole course on the other side of that parking lot, which is called the Bunker, which is much more challenging, uh, very, very long, tight lines through the woods. Uh, it's very demanding. Um, but if that's your if that's your uh, your jam, then I cannot possibly recommend it more. Thank you, Calvin, for uh, joining us. Sounds uh, sounds like it's growing. It is indeed, Bill. Thank you so much for the time, and uh, I hope to see a number of new faces out on the courses. This is Show Me Today, the Voice of Missouri. Show me today.